Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. Imagine working on the design and build of one of the greatest Formula One cars in history, a groundbreaking machine that changed the aerodynamic game. My guest today did just that. A quietly spoken Aussie who was in the UK during a pioneering period where they achieved amazing things without the multi-million dollar tech, CAD and cutting edge wind tunnels that they have today. Ralph Bellamy is still working on race cars, now in his 80s, but these days it's for fun, enjoying that same challenge of engineering solutions. If you were at the Bathurst Six Hour, for example, you'd find him working with Beric Linton and Tim Lay, who campaign a BMW in the Australian Production Car Championship. If you didn't know, you could walk past him in pit lane without even realising he worked at Lotus during the 1970s, playing an important part of the quantum leap in Formula One, the beginning of what's called the ground effect era. Many of the good engineers and designers are like Ralph. They tend not to seek the limelight, instead getting immense satisfaction from creating and problem-solving in the background finding advantage in the rules to build something that gives the team an edge and quietly smiling in the moment of success knowing they were an important part of making the tool that, together with the right driver and pit crew, did the job better than everyone else. There are some fabulous stories in here from a career that took Ralph all over the world. He talks about living and working in Brazil flying with race drivers they are some hair-raising stories let me tell you going to events sometimes without visas the day that adrian newey who you know today from red bull racing applied for a job and much more ralph was there at a time when f1 fatalities were way more common than they thankfully are today his recollections on some of those moments is incredibly moving years on you get a sense of just how much it affected him Fittingly, we recorded this chat sitting in a race transporter at Bathurst. If you have a love of old race cars, or perhaps your parents have fond memories of this era, I hope you all enjoy it. And I know for aspiring engineers that listen, there will be plenty of takeaways for you too. Over two hours of convo, split into two parts. We begin with Ralph's early life, growing up in Sydney's northwest which was very different then to the busy city suburb it's become now. In Eastwood in those days, when I grew up, it was in the Second World War. And, of course, parental supervision probably wasn't as tight (laughs) in those days as it is. is. And and it was... Eastwood was pretty bushy then. And so it was just a great place to grow up. And when the war didn't worry us, we didn't. That was just you know, somebody else's problem. Yeah. yeah. Were you uh, were you good at school? Where did you go to school? And were you sort of embedded in anything you could get your hands on and fabricate or whatever? Um, I went to primary school at Eastwood, but um, I think I always had a kind of a mechanical bent. Yep. You know? um, I don't know why, but I, you know, you repaired your own push bike and all that kind of stuff in those days and that kind of thing. So, uh, and then I went to Homebush, and then when I left school, 
motor bodybuilders, yep. um, garbage trucks, dump trucks for the Snowy Mountains Hydro Scheme. Okay. I was welding bodies up out of half-inch steel plate. Um, and um, after that, that was about five or six years, I went complete change of pace, went to work for the CSIRO, okay. designing scientific equipment. Okay. See, if you're doing a, an experiment, you can't just go and buy the test equipment. You've got to make it. You've got to make it. Mm. And so the CSIRO had a nice workshop and stuff, and the guys would make whatever you drew for them yeah. for the uh, scientists to do their experiments with. So I worked there for five years, I think it was. And then my main interest then was in ocean yacht racing. Yeah. And so I just did that, sailed out of Sydney Harbour. And I did the Hobart in 65. Yeah, that, that too, I mean, I've been lucky enough to work as a reporter on that race. And I, I can vividly recall coming back through the fleet in, in 98, which was a fatal race for, for many of them. Mm. That is a seriously daunting sporting mission. What was that like back well, then? You see, in those days, they weren't, they were cruising boats, really, by today's standards. Um, and um, the boat that I spent a lot of time on was an old catch. And you got more sails and stuff to play with on a catch <laughs> than you got on a sloop. And But as a sport, it's about the toughest sport you can be in because if it turns to fertiliser, you can't go and have a shower and go home. Mm. You've got to sail the boat. Mm. And uh, so in that respect, it's tougher than most sports. Yeah. Great, great, great thing, great learning or life experience, I would imagine, in all that. Can I just, just come back just to a couple of details in the in the um, chapter you've covered off about work and things? Firstly, I, I think you went off to college and studied mechanical engineering. You can you can clarify that for me. And and the the work that we would see from you in Formula One and later life, you, you were even with garbage trucks, you were you were modifying and improving, weren't you? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean you're always trying to do something a bit better yeah. than, than the average runner stuff because that makes it interesting. Whatever you, if you're doing the same thing over and over again mm. or just repeating what other people have done, yes. it's not as interesting as if you're right. um, doing unique work or trying to do some unique work. How did you fix the, the garbage trucks? What did you do? Oh, we lowered the chassis so the guys didn't have to throw the bin so high. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. The sailing lured you to England, didn't it? You wanted to go off and and, uh, and chase that. Just tell us a bit about that. Well, um, there was a sort of a, a bit of a natural break and I decided that my girlfriend and I, who's English and who's now my wife, mm-hmm. um, we decided we'd go to England because I wanted to do the Fastnet race yep. and some of the big races in Europe. But being a bit disorganised, when I got there, I found that they didn't do the fastnet every other year. Yeah, yeah. And the year that I got there was the year they weren't doing it. So I just jacked off a bit in the med and flown on boats and stuff for that year, which was 67. Uh, yep. That's around the Mediterranean. That would have been beautiful, was it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, boats are boats down yeah. there. Um, <laughs> but... Um, then towards the end of the year, having been there for the previous winter, I realised that I really needed to get... I was either going to go skiing with my mates yep. or I needed to get a job 
where I was indoors and somebody else was paying the heating <laughs> bills during the day. <laughs> now, did you, did you at this point um, either cold call Ron Turanak or how did you connect with him and was he the first option? Um, he, was a, he was the one of two options. It was either go and work for him or go skiing with my mates. <laughs> and, um, but I, I might have known where they were mm-hmm. over at the Waylock Works. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, my wife was working in an office with another girl whose husband uh, was actually the bag tank supplier. Okay. And he'd been to see Ron trying to sell him bag tanks, which was pretty hard because Ron just fitted welded aluminium tanks to the okay. Brabham's. But he'd come away and Ron must have mentioned to him he was looking for a draftsman. And so, and I think the girlfriend, who wasn't a wife then, probably worked out that if I went skiing with a mate, she'd probably never see me again. <laughs> <laughs> so she encouraged me to go and work for Ron. So I went and saw him, and I agreed to turn up the next day. Next day. Next day. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you can imagine what it would be like with Ron. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I went on and I thought, oh, jeez, I've done the right thing. I thought, well, one thing in my life, I do what I say I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to, got to live by that. And so I I said I'd go, so I'm going to go. And that was the start of it. And literally, um, you didn't look back. You've been immersed in motor racing basically ever since, haven't you? Well, I've done nothing else. Mm. Just designed, built racing cars and raced them. Yep. And it's a great life. And we want to talk more about the various directions you've gone within the bounds of that. Before you left Australia, for example, did you venture out to a Warwick farm or to an Oran Park? Or were there were there early race experiences before you left Australia? There were, actually. Um, there's a, a guy who's still alive in, in, in Sydney called Alec Lazic. And um, motor race, some of the motor racing people would probably remember him. Um, but back in the early 60s, he had... Um, a small nota um, and I used to help him with that but I knew absolutely nothing engineering wise about racing cars I mean it was just him and I playing with this thing um, making a muck of it probably <laughs> Did you ever steer one yourself? Did you ever have a, a day where there might have been a, a quiet practice day or a test day or something where you took one for a, a spin and how did you find that? No no I've never done that um the only time I ever drove a car in a race was um, some years later when I was at Team Lotus and they had some sort of an event at Brands Hatch. Um, it was sort of a pro-am thing and where the team managers or owners were going to drive with the drivers and Colin didn't want to be bothered going down to do it. And he said, well, you go and do it. So I borrowed a, a helmet off Ronnie and went down and uh, they were Ford Escorts okay. of some sort yeah. um, and uh, so I drove in this race um, against some of the Formula 1 drivers and some of the team managers and I spent most of the race trying to catch Bernie and <laughs> turn him round <laughs> I, I wanted to get him going into, into, into Paddock yeah. which is the uh, the corner at the end of the pit straight before it dives down the hill and I thought if I can just give him a tip on the rear corner I'll spin him down there and 
liven him up, but I could never. He was always just that little bit quicker than me. <laughs> you've uh, you've bounced across some some great names there, which we'll cover in a minute, including um, Ronnie Peterson, Colin Chapman, Bernie Eccleston, and and, and so on. Um, you mentioned Ron Turanak, right? The, the 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 start of it. So he and and Sir Jack Brabham, who have you know very sadly left us now, they were in many ways leading lights for Australians on either side of the pit wall back then, weren't they? So what? What was Ron like as a as a person to work with that for people that perhaps don't know him and how were the early sort of experiences working there? Ron was a very straightforward person mm. in his life, a very honest man. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing you, you you couldn't help but notice was when you worked there and you hear the or an in racing team you hear what's going on in the office and. <laughs> So often, the, the check's in the mail. Yep. With Ron, no. Um, the bills would come in. He'd, the girls would write the checks, put them on his desk. He'd sign them. They'd go out, boom. Well, done. Um, done. No messing. Yeah. He was absolutely straightforward. Yeah. Um, so honest it, day's work for an honest day's pay type absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it paid dividends for him as well because... If he wanted something from a supplier, he'd be he'd get it. Yeah. Um, but um, from an engineering point of view, he he knew his business, business. obviously. Mm-hmm. And so I learnt from one of the best guys. Did you? What did you What did you learn? Do you think? What were the first race cars you were working on then? Well, we started at that time when I went there. We. St- they were building the BT-25, which is an Indy car, mm-hmm. and it was the first monocroc that yeah. Ron had tried to make. Okay. Um, the, the BT-26, which was a Formula 1 car, yeah. um, and it had a Repco engine in those days. Yeah. Um, Iconic period for Australians connected to the sport. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, uh, BT-27, 28, 29 and 30... The 30 was a Formula 2 car, 28 was a Formula 3 car. So all those cars were on the go yeah. when I started there. Yeah. yeah. And what involvement were you having because you were, you were new to the team and, and things like that? Well, in, initially I was just a detailed draftsman drawing yeah. whatever Ron wanted drawn. Yeah. Um, there were three of us in the drawing office. There was Mike Hillman, an English guy, absolute character. Um, he was the chief draftsman and Ted Marley a northern Irishman who did the illustrations Brabham's had a when you bought a Brabham you got a parts list mm-hmm. you know and like it with an exploded drawing okay and Ted produced that Amazing. Yeah, can you imagine yeah this is all yeah. pre-computers and it, no yeah. this was hand-drawn exploded drawings of the car as a parts list so that you could order stuff off the parts amazing how Creative could you guys get back then? And can you remember some of them? I mean, it was in your career some very pivotal moments for for motor racing in a in an engineering or a design sense. I mean, the the uh, explosion, if you will, of working with wings, and then and then later wind tunnels and and so on. Um, but the chance to experiment with that, Ralph, what was that like? Well, you see, in Formula One, there's always some new thing mm. okay there's there's this critical critical performance area where everybody's working mm. and 
at that time it was wings mm. we just started to put wings on cars and they were just getting bigger and better and more and we're learning more about it and they started off if you look at some of the photographs it just looks horrendous with these mounted directly on the rear wing mounted directly on the rear uprights and yeah. stuff like that and you think oh that can't work <laughs> but uh, so that was that was interesting and good fun you know there's always been when you look back over the history of, of motorsport kind of this this tie or connection to uh to to uh, aircraft manufacture if you will and a lot of things have, have filtered our way from that so was the how did the wing experimentation can you remember some of, of that stuff and the conversations around it and how it all could have kind of kicked off well um there was a guy called ray jessup who worked at british aircraft which was just down the road because you, they were building in the middle of the old Brooklyn's racetrack um, there was an aircraft factory um, the Brooklyn's racetrack was not they knocked a hole in it um, but uh, they were building VC-10s there and they used to fly them out wow and you'd, you'd hear them when, when you could tell one was ready to go because they'd do taxi runs and stuff yeah. and then you'd hear them give it the big one and out they go oh, yeah. um, and they'd be empty, there'd be no no seats or nothing in them okay. because that'd be light as to yeah. get out yeah. but they used to fly them over to another airfield and fit them out but okay. um, and um, So were you knocking about with people over there and learning a few things and did no, it? No, 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 it's just Ray um, was out the one bloke who knew which way up to put a wing really uh, and sort of thing so uh, and we just learned by experiment. experiments yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah did stuff go wrong and what when when it went wrong what went wrong mm, well um if you remember there were some wing failures mm. at um, barcelona mm-hmm. and some rear wings blew off the lotus and stuff like that so yeah there, some people had a more character building learning curve than the rest of us yeah, yeah. yeah. the drivers um you know you talk about working in the in the office there and things but invariably there'll be um uh, the, you know you, you end up working with drivers who were some of the first that you you came across and what were they what were they like we didn't have a lot to do with drivers because mm-hmm. you see the the, the Brabham organization was in two parts one was motor racing developments where i worked which was the Waylock Works, which was some old World War Two buildings and a porter cabin okay. down beside the canal, yep. um, and we just built cars for the public, <laughs> and we also built the Formula One cars and the Indy car there. Yep. But Jack himself worked out of a workshop down in Guildford, mm-hmm. and that was called the Brabham Racing Organisation, yep. and that's where the racing team ran from. Okay. Um, so um, we were a bit sheltered. I mean, there were drivers that come through, like Derek Bell and I think um, when Rint Jochen drove, yeah, Jochen, he came through and we just saw him. But, I mean, we were just irks in the drawing office, really. Okay, okay. Um, what about Sir Jack? I mean, um, you know, triple world champion, a very high stature in, a, in Australian sport, not just, not just motor racing. What was he like? He was good. I mean, he... He, he um, was straightforward, but, I mean, to me, Jack was a bit of a bandit. Okay. Um, you had to be. Yeah. Um, 
and you had to be a strong character, mm-hmm. and he was. Yeah. But with, with me, we were all just mates. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a, an easy, comfortable relationship. He didn't, he didn't ponce around like I'm Jack Brabham or anything like that. He was, he enjoyed the engineering. Yes. Some of the stuff uh, um, he did. Uh, at home, I've got a, a gear that he had made, which was a, for the first gear in the gearbox. Yeah. And it meant it had a one-way drive in it. And so with this gear in the box, when you started the engine, the car was in gear mm-hmm. and would go. Whoa. But he used it at Monaco. Yeah. So that he all he had to do was pull it into neutral and he was in first gear. Wow. So the box, the Hewland box, left and down mm-hmm. was first, straight ahead was reverse. So you had to go across the gate to second, Same. third, fourth, fifth. Yep. So by not having to go far left and back in to get into first, he was just rowing the thing through an H. I'm with you. I'm with you. You see what I mean? Yes. And so if he came into a corner, he'd be braking. He just had to knock it into neutral. And then when he wanted to pick up second, after he accelerated out, he'd just pull into second, third, fourth, fifth. That's the sort of thing that he did. And I believe that um, one of the reasons why he had a long career in a dangerous, in those days it was bloody dangerous mm. sport. I mean, I've been to a few races where drivers have been killed and stuff and it's not funny. Mm. Um, and, uh, but I think the difference was most of the other drivers were wealthy young men mm-hmm. or had wealthy fathers or whatever. Mm. Um, they came from an era where if, if you want to go racing, you bought yourself a 250F Maserati and you just got in it and drove as fast as you could. Um, if they wanted to go faster, they had to try harder. Mm. If Jack wanted to go faster, he'd make the car better. Because up here, in his head, he knew ways, he, he could sense what the car was doing. Mm. He wouldn't try harder, mm. he'd make the car go harder. And that's why I believe he had the longevity. He lived through a very, very dangerous era. Mm. Can we talk a bit about that if you're comfortable? I mean, um, whether it was the circuits or, or the, the safety, I mean, we, we uh, now in motor racing benefit so much from sadly what happened back then because we, you know, they were learnings. Mm. Um, when did the danger of that game first really sink in for you? Oh, I guess um, you realise that people were having accidents in cars and getting hurt. Um, I can't remember a particular instance. Um, you mean I, you talked you talk before about drivers? I, I can remember being at Zandvoort when Roger Williamson crashed and the thing caught fire and he, he got burnt. And also, um, what's his name? The, Young 
Um, bloke that drove for Frank. Um, one of one English nobility. Um, can't think of his name for the minute. Um, he, I think, again at Zandvoort, I think he got killed there. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, I hadn't been working long in the Brabham office when um, I, I think was it Ronald Jack came in and said, um, Jimmy's been killed. Sugar. Jimmy Clark, we're talking yeah. about Yeah. And it, was, it, it was sort of a. Uh, uh, and, uh, and this this was one of Jack's major competitors, the guy that would yeah. be hardest for him to beat. Yeah. Um, and we just thought, shit, Jimmy's got killed. Mm. And he was at the time sort of thought upon as a as a. I mean, if you draw a, a parallel with modern era, either a, either a Senna or maybe a Lewis Hamilton, he was immensely talented. Wasn't he was he? oh yeah. hugely talented, and he had a, a great relationship with Colin. Mm. Um, so they worked together, and and. When you get a relationship like that, you get an improved performance because it's like two brains mm. trying to solve all the problems. Mm. Yeah, chemistry between people in that regard is such an important thing. How big a learning was was that for you? Working with people, getting the most out of them. You'd come from, you know, that uh, that mechanical engineering study at uh, at college in in Australia, but but people is where it it often really excels, isn't it? Well, you see. If you're going to do the work that I do, mm. you have to be a competitor. Mm. You want to you want to compete, mm. and so you it makes sense that you form a kind of a bit of a bond mm. with your driver, mm. and you also have to speak the same language. Mm. Uh, not not I'm not talking about English and French and mm. German. Mm. I mean how you describe things. Mm. You've got to be on the same page how you describe what the car's doing mm. and um, it's a rewarding relationship yeah. can be a very rewarding relationship yeah. and I mean I've been lucky enough to enjoy that sort of relationship with lots of guys for years yeah. There's a good story if you don't mind sharing it's quite funny about you and Ronnie Peterson and he was I think struggling at one point and he was talking about oversteer, wasn't he? And <laughs> you had to, you had to get on the same page as to what he really meant. Oh, this, this was this was a wild weekend. <laughs> <laughs> For the first time, we had four Lotus seventy twos at the track. Um, for Emerson and two for Emerson, two for Ronnie, yep. and um, Ronnie had a cold and. Um, I think he was taking some medication for his cold. But anyway, um, he's out on the track and he's coming in. He's saying, I've got oversteer, I've got oversteer. And I'm working away trying to solve this oversteer he's got. And we're getting nowhere. Yep. And I said, Ronnie, just, just tell me in detail what's going on. And he said, well, when I get come to the corner, it won't go in. So I have to chuck it in and then as soon as I when I as soon as I try and get on the power it oversteers. I said, Ronnie, you haven't got oversteer, you've got understeer. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Fantastic. You've rattled off two great names there. Can we can we explore that a little bit? What what was Ronnie like to work with and what sort of impact? Ronnie uh, Ronnie was a really good friend of mine. I just he was the nicest bloke. Mm. Um one of the things you've got to understand about sportsmen, individual sportsmen, in a lot of cases, are not the nicest people. 
like if they play golf or tennis or they're not team players mm. and uh, racing drivers can be like that mm. um, and you saw like Senna and Prost and the relationship they had and stuff like that so but Ronnie never had a mean bone in his body he was just the loveliest loveliest person and quick mm. unbelievably quick mm. I mean I remember um, the first time anybody ever took woodcut flat onto the pit straight mm-hmm. at Silverstone. We're out there and of course it, we're testing and you go testing, it's got to be quiet and you hear this car coming up from you know, Stowe and you're listening and it doesn't button off and he come round the corner and the tyres were howling and <laughs> he just came through flat and we go shit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he was just great. Mm. Um, and uh, when, um, unfortunately, he got killed, and he got killed in one of my cars, and I was working in Brazil for Emerson. I couldn't work for a fortnight. Is that right? I was buggered. Yeah. Could, and in some ways, that's when racing stopped being quite so much fun. Did it? I just... It got to be more like a job and less less fun. But okay. the work I do now here, let's say, with Berwick yeah. for a number of years, um, that's fun. Yes. We go racing for yeah. fun. And, and, and I've got that enjoyment back. Again. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, Ronnie was just special for me. Yeah. We'll come back to Berwick and to Tim Lay and the crew here at the Bathurst Six Hour as we continue our conversation. Before we get to Emerson, I just want to touch on something that you, you mentioned there. I mean, you can... Sometimes with these drivers, you can you can see it in their eyes, can't you? I mean, it's almost like they'd run over their grandmother to win. And I have this odd appreciation for that because I think where you were going with your comment a moment ago, you actually need a bit of that, don't you? You oh, need, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not criticising you. No, not at all. Not at all. That's how you've got to be. Yeah. And, I mean, in, in some ways, it even comes through to the engineer. Yeah. I mean, I... Are you a competitive person like that? Are you? Yes. Are you? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. y- yes, I am. I still am. I yeah. still love to win. I like, there's nothing better from an engineer than walking onto the grid to see your guy off mm. and he's on the front row and you look back and you think, look at him flonkers back there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'm competitive. Mm. I love it. Emerson Fittipaldi, you would go and work for him and live in yes, Brazil, and yes, we'll, we'll cover yes, that chapter yes. soon. But in that that period there with with Ronnie, and uh, I mean, it was a great period in the in the seventies. What was he like, Ronnie? No, no uh, I'm talking about Emerson. Emerson. Emerson was good. Yeah, talented and really good. Yeah. Um, good driver, um, and uh, he. Had a lot of great feel for the car. He was a good development driver. Okay. He, he was good, and he was a nice person, yeah. and tougher than Ronnie. But yeah. um, and um, I think when later on in his career, when we got to wing cars, and um, you've talked to Alan Jones, who mm-hmm. won a world championship. Yeah. Now, Alan was the sort of guy who would respond well to one of those wing cars. Okay. Um, whereas Emerson wasn't. Uh-huh. Emerson, to my way of thinking, wanted to feel and drive the car through the corner mm-hmm. and respond to what the car was doing. <laughs> those cars were just total commitment, mm. and Alan had that. Mm. And he just hurled it in, and you 
just hope that you came out having avoided the accident you just arranged for yourself. Yeah. You just had those cars were so quick through the corner. Mm. There was no changing anything. Mm. Plus the fact that the steering was so heavy because mm. they had so much downforce mm. that you couldn't turn the steering wheel in the corner anyway. Amazing. We'll talk just before we move on to sort of the whole notion of aerodynamics and the impact that wings had on, on aspects of the cars because, you know, um, you mentioned Bernie Eccleston. Various people have talked about him in the in the podcast chats that I've had, and I've, I've interviewed him once or twice. He's one of the most daunting human beings I've I've met. You've got to get out of bed very early to try and be sharper than Bernie. He's a great chess player. What was he like to to be with? Well, yeah, you're going to love this. <laughs> um, when I went to work for Bernie, it was in the beginning of 1972, and um, it was. The late and great Jack Bradman that put put me into Bernie's clutches, um, and uh, so um, he had no money. Oh, I don't know how much money he had. Hmm. He drove a Rolls Royce, but that didn't mean much in Bernie's. But he didn't have money to spend on the Bradman team, hmm. and everybody thinks about Bernie now as a billionaire and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. That's the Bernie that everybody knows now. Mm. Well, when I in 1972, I don't know how much money he had, but he didn't spend it on the cars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Um, and um, so it was a character-building year. The best part of it was that Graham was driving, yeah. and I'd known Graham over the years, but I got to know him really well. Um, and uh, I just loved Graham. He was just a greatest bloke to work with mm. he was unhappily he was at the end of his career then and he was slowed down but yeah. that was the best part of the year yeah. really you talk about graham hill who yeah. obviously you know sadly passed away in a uh, in a plane crash yeah. um and his son damon would go on to to win the world championship in the mid 90s which was which was quite cool again in in the manner you talked about uh, 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 you know like um he was one of the greats of the game and, and very strong at Monaco and places like that, wasn't he? Mm. But going back to Bernie, I mean, he is smart as. Yeah. Mental arithmetic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, he could work out percentages and stuff in his head like that. Yeah. yeah um, was two, always two steps ahead, wasn't he? But he never really forgave me for leaving him and going to work for Team Lotus. Okay. Um... We, we, I mean, we had a normal relationship, yeah. but we we're never going to be mates Once after that. Yeah. No. The advent of, of wings, which we talked a little bit about earlier, and the experimentation around that, and so on, that that's changed the the cars. I mean, you talked about Jonesy and even the way that you drove them, but it also it also changed the pressure on componentry, didn't it? Oh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, they reckoned that the good thing about wings was it made it better for the sport because you could race the cars in the wet mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. In other words, you get to a point with so much water on the track that you can't even have a race. Um, before you had wings, that was arrived, that point arrived a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just start aquaplaning. Yeah. And so um, that helped, but over the years the wings themselves 
um, certainly put greater loads on the cars. But what really put huge loads on the cars was when I designed the wing car and people started running wing cars and the real grip went up. And none of us understood how strong you had to make the car to cope with that. Um, What sort of things were breaking then? It wasn't so much things that were breaking, the things didn't handle as well. It wasn't, the structure wasn't, you didn't have the structural integrity. At the end of the day, you're trying to keep control of the contact patch. Mm. And it was all evolving. And there was a a sort of strange thing happened. Um, At the start of, it must have been about 87, maybe, 88, maybe 89. Everybody gathered for the first Grand Prix of the year down in South America. And suddenly um, the um, French car with Lafitte driving it um, was quicker than anybody else and nobody expected that. Mm -hmm. And the the designer was a guy called Gerard Ducarouge. He'd come from Matra to work for Ligier. And... um, They'd been running a V12 engine, and somebody had said to Ducarouge, hey, you're now going to put a Cosworth in there. You've got to to understand the Cosworth vibrates, and it's not like a V12, it's all balanced and smooth. The Cosworth shakes sideways due to the the flat plane crank, and so your engine mountings have got to be maybe a bit more butch than what you've had before. so Gerard must have made the rear bulkhead in that whole area really super strong mm. and it paid off mm. because that was the only car that was strong enough in that area mm. all the rest of us and people were copying everything they could see on that car because <laughs> oh yeah they, they did not know and Gerard did not know mm. I talked to him he said I don't know why it's so quick but we were all under-engineered. Isn't it oddly convenient that Greg Rust, also known as Rusty, works in the automotive industry where Rust is something automotive folks have to deal with? Talk about good branding. You're naturally leading to the chapter with Colin Chapman and um, you guys did some incredible things there in that period. What was your first meeting with him? When was the first overture to come and play at Lotus? It was, I think Peter Wall got in touch with me and went up and had an interview. And um, I remember talking to Graham and that, that, that the race of champions at the end of the year, and he said, he said, oh, he said, well, here you're going to go and work for Colin. I said, yeah. He said, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. He said, that's, the, that's where you should go, yeah. Because he realised that Bernie wasn't spending any money on the cars and that... Um, Graham believed I had the skill to be the Lotus chief designer so um, away we went He's a legendary figure in the history of the sport Um, I gather like you a competitive human being what what were your first recollections of of him and working there? Well I don't have a first recollection but Colin was um, a a leader of men, mm-hmm. 
an entrepreneur, a salesman. Um, but as far as I was concerned, he wasn't as good an engineer um, as he is made out to be. Mm-hmm. But he had more than enough talents to counter that. I mean, he didn't have to be a good engineer to get where he got to. Yeah. And But he had ideas. Yeah. He understood the engineering and he... he his ex- let's say his engineering lacked on execution mm-hmm. rather than ideas. Okay. okay. So he had the ideas. Yeah. Um, and, but he had people like Len Terry and Morris Philippe who preceded me mm-hmm. to, to do that, yeah. the detail stuff yeah. for him. Um, and um, I got on well with him. Mm. Personally, Colin and I had a really good relationship. Mm. Yeah. You worked on some iconic cars, mate, that people will fondly remember in, um, you know, the black and gold JPS colours. And you you were leading to this in our in our conversation before about a a groundbreaking really development in in the cars in the area of the floor and ground effects yeah. and and so on. So uh, there'll be probably a couple of questions, you know, in this in this phase. Were you guys together? I think was it Peter Wright? I think you guys were, were you. Was there a light bulb moment for you when you you started thinking about this? How did that come to come to pass? Well, <laughs> um, August holidays yeah. in Ibiza. Colin had a villa, and my in-laws had a villa in Ibiza. So Colin came. Colin and Hazel came round to have lunch with us, and Colin said, "I've got to make a new car." <laughs> <laughs> So, and he had he had some ideas <clears throat> that he wanted this car to achieve aerodynamically, which was wrong, but doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, Just conceptually, what yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So, I said, yeah, fine. So he said, I want you to come down, Catteringham Hall, on your own, nobody else, um, and uh, so I said. Well, Colin, this what to achieve what you want. Um, we're going to have to go to the wind tunnel and do some serious wind tunnel work. And uh, Peter Wright was working in the Lotus Group, and um, he was doing plastics development. And it, where he was working was making the mold tools mm-hmm. for the cars and the boats, and because Colin was into boats, and it was just. It was just <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so I said, can I have Peter to help me with this? And he said, yep, you can have Peter to help you. And um, so Peter and I sat down and decided what we'd do. And so <clears throat> in a way, it kind of harked back to my work at the CSIRO. Wow. To building test equipment. Um, and uh, Peter said, what we've got to do, we've got to go to the wind tunnel at Imperial College because they've got a moving floor there and that'll be, that'll give us better work there. And so I said, okay, well, we'll make some quarter-scale stuff and we'll go to the Imperial College. So Peter booked all that. And so I made I made a model of the 72, um, a model of what, we thought the new car might look like but we needed to do some development work particularly around the front of the car and in those days there were two solutions to the front 
One was to have a wing, like a classic front wing. Yep. The other was to have like a, a, a big rounded nose. Yep. Um, and they seemed to be pretty much equally successful because some cars had the big rounded nose, some cars had front wings. Mm. Um, so we wanted to try that out and um, we ran first thing first thing we had a problem we went down there on a Monday and the wind tunnel wasn't working so it wasn't until about the Wednesday or Thursday we actually got to do any work so we ran the, the, the model of the Lotus 72 to give us a base ran the model of what we thought might work and it didn't do much at all um, so then we started to do look at just what, how like um, the front nose worked whether a, a big bin or whether a wing was better mm. and <clears throat> I had my little quarter scale wing which was you know you can imagine a quarter scale I mean it was tiny little wooden wing and I had it mounted on, a, on, on, the, on the wind tunnel and we could heave it up and down and change the angle of it and stuff and when we dropped it down near the belt the load went up and I'm because Peter ran the tunnel and I, I would I was the mechanic if you like and I'm looking and I could see the belt sucking up towards the bottom of this wing I said hey Peter come and look at this and the belt's whizzing around and, and there's a sort of a suction box underneath to hold the belt down but the, the suction in this little venturi under this wing which was about must have been about inch and a half cord mm. tiny little piece of wood mm. um, and um, you can see the belt starting to pull up and we thought bloody hell what's going on there and we thought about, well yeah okay there's a message there so up until that time the conventional wisdom um, <laughs> was that um, you had to keep the wings high okay. out of ground effect. Mm -hmm. and it sort of came something to do with light aircraft and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you look at all the cars of the previous, that era, all the front wings are always mounted high on the nose. Mm. They're not mounted on the bottom yeah, of the nose. They're yeah. all mounted high. high yeah. Because you have to keep it out of ground effect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we have to do that? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, there's something else going on here. Now, um, Peter had had a dabble with thinking about a, a wing car kind of thing. But it w the wing always would have been high. Mm -hmm. And how do you get that in? I wanted to put a wing I knew that from wind tunnel work just on big wind tunnels with a whole car that you could crank the front wing up and down and you get more downforce but no more drag because it's in front of the front wheels and I always thought well what we ought to do is put a wing in front of the rear wheel and it'll be just as good we'll get some more downforce um, <clears throat> so um, Peter and I are kind of 
thinking, well, the wing doesn't have to be in there. Because I'm thinking, how am I going to put a wing on the side of a Cosworth engine mm. up high mm. in front of the rear wheel? And I think, it's you know, too messy. You know, I can't, it's not going to work. And so um, that was the end of the week. So I went back to Norfolk and we had a meeting um, on the Sunday morning at Ketteringham Hall. And it was Colin, Tony Rudd, Peter Wall, Peter Wright and myself. And we ex- explained to Colin that we'd seen this and we wanted to try and pursue this because it... And I've still got the piece of paper at home out of the pad where I sketched what I was trying to tell him. Because he could not understand how this worked initially and we had to explain it to him and the penny dropped and then once typical column once the penny dropped he was away i still got a bit of paper with my drawing then there's columns sketching on top of it and you know and so we went back on the monday and because they people in imperial college said you can have another week to make up for what you lost so we uh, cut ourselves a sort of a wing to put on the side and put it on and it was better and we were fiddling around and um, we were starting to get the model was starting to get a bit worn by this time um, and uh, we are getting inconsistent results and obviously because I was a slothful mechanic I was putting these wings on the side at different heights and angles and, and that was making it inconsistent Peter said oh, what we need to do is to put a side skirt on so he put just a bit of cardboard on the side <laughs> the bloody forces went sky high with it shit okay. that's it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and I thought this has got to make the best indie car you ever saw so in your high. life. Yeah. Because that's just consistently high speed. Yeah. I mean, Formula One car is a bit different. Mm-hmm. And the speedway car, the track's flat, yeah. you're not dealing with curbs or anything. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, um, we knew then where we had to go. So the two things that came out of that, which neither Peter or I knew mm-hmm. before we went in there, mm-hmm. was A, you had to get near the ground. Mm-hmm. B, you had to have a skirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why whatever Peter did in the past didn't work and why I never did what I sort of thought I wanted to do. But the two of us together mm-hmm. um, solved the problem and started... It, from that time on, every other car was just obsolete. Yeah, it was, it was revolutionary. And, I mean, if you look in the modern, as you know, in the modern era of Formula One now, I mean, every team's got either its own very expensive wind tunnel or access to one. Mm-hmm. You guys were pioneering here, weren't you? And, and the, the college kindly. <laughs> well, you see, Imperial College had this wind tunnel, which was a quarter-scale wind tunnel, so you, it was like... We're sitting on a lounge here, so what are you... What are yeah, you, it's you a bit, the, the tunnel was about as wide as, as this, where yeah. we are here, so it's about, what, four feet, five feet? Yeah. Five feet by about mm, four feet high yeah. so you're in there crouched down um, the belt was about um, three quarters of a metre wide um, and about 
two metres long, running on rollers. Um, and uh, so what was the college using it for? And how did you? Well, they they uh, one of the experimenters there, one of the professors or whatever he was, um, had done a series of experiments on, I think, the pressures around a rolling wheel. Mm-hmm. Why you want to do that, I don't know. But and so that's why they put this moving floor in. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and that made the difference. We would have never found this wow. without the moving floor. Yeah. Um, and so, as far as I know, at that time, it was only wind tunnel around that had a moving floor. So, and typically, a wind tunnel like that. Um, would only be used by the students for a limited part of the year. And maybe one of the professors would use it for months for a series of experiments, and most of the time it'd lie idle. Okay. I've got to tell you where it is. Yeah. It's at the back of the Albert Hall. Wow! At the <laughs> right behind the Albert Hall. And the, the road runs parallel to the main road that goes past the Albert Hall. And so you're up on about the second or third floor and you look down on the street and it's all in, in a room, a big, big room. Yeah. So it wasn't a particularly big tunnel. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, the cost of this room, I mean, if this was hotel rooms or yes. what it could earn, yes. yeah, <laughs> here we've got it. Do around him. And... Um, it, in the afternoon, you could see the the people coming to go to the Albert Hall, the promenaders, and they'd park their cars down there, and they'd have their afternoon tea and stuff, and we'd be doing our stuff in the wind tunnel. But um, and so over the years, of course, suddenly when it it must have taken probably a year, but once the penny dropped with the other people, this was the busiest wind tunnel Tell in the me. world. <laughs> They talk now, Ralph, about about translation between what you learn in the wind tunnel and what really happens on on track. And I know, as the evolution of this car happened, you you wanted to move weight back, and you played with, I think, the positioning of radiators and and stuff like that. But did it did it immediately translate to something successful on track, or were there still things that needed tuning in the real world? Um, <clears throat> well, this car was a break away from really what Chapman had done before because, first of all, it was designed to have outboard front brakes, which they'd converted the 77, which Mm -hmm. is a dreadful car, Mm -hmm. but they converted that to outboard brakes and proved that that worked. worked. Um, And uh, so the good thing with Colin um, was that... He said to me, do you want to build this car, this wing car? I said, yes. And he said, okay. So now, yep. he could have said, no, well, let's do something a bit halfway. Mm-hmm. Or, or, but he was all in. But he said, no, okay, do it. Awesome. And I owe him for that. Mm. I mean, he was difficult in some ways to work with at times, but... Um, I really owe him for that because um, he gave me the opportunity. And you see, in my position, or as a chief designer, 
you, you're limited by the budget you've got mm. and the people and the support you get mm. and the people you've got within the organisation <clears throat> to do execute the, this execute yeah. the mm. job, mm. you know. Mm. And Colin provided all that mm. and gave me the opportunity to be, at that time, the best in the world. Mm. Do they become something that you have a connection to? Like, do you look back on that car now and go, that's enormously special what you what you did there? Or is it just a tool and they evolve every year and you want the next best thing? Uh, How do you... I mean, <clears throat> that car was special. Very. Um, there was a lot more to it than just the wings. Was there? Yeah. Because yeah. um, typical Colin, to get the weight distribution right, we were starting to put a bell housing in between the engine and the gearbox, about mm. ooh, 10 inches long. And Colin looked at it and he's thinking, that's a waste of space. And he said, what we should do there is put the oil tank there. Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> actually the first 78, the oil tank was in front of the engine down in the back of the monocoque. Mm -hmm. The subsequent ones um, had a bell housing oil tank and that was the first ever bell housing oil tank that mm -hmm. I drew. With a coaxial clutch release, mm -hmm. like they have now all, on all the cars, but I had to design my own. Wow! Um, I think I'd heard. I think a Saab. Somebody mentioned one time that Saab had something like that. Okay. And <clears throat> I thought, well, that makes sense. Sense. <laughs> Instead of having an external cylinder and a lever and stuff, yeah. and so. It had to work. If it hadn't worked, yeah, we'd have been in trouble because there was no other clutch release available. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, it had, the car had that, um, and um, I <clears throat> we'd had trouble. Colin had trouble with a car that I had nothing to do with, which was a '77 with like stiction in the suspension mm -hmm. so I put little needle bearings in all the, the joints to make it run freely and that was a bit of a mission in its own um, so it was there were, and <clears throat> the cooling system um, I think we're going to put the radiators because we needed wings on the side and yeah clear shot at them, we don't want to kind of radiators up the front um, so Tony Rudd actually said well the Mosquito World War II aeroplane has the radiators in the wing I thought ah yeah we can do that so the radiator inlets were in the front of the wings um, which is what everybody has now, now yeah, so yeah. I mean you look at everything that's out there now and it's just an evolution of what I did, did. Yeah. back in a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, you must be, you should be enormously um, proud of those uh, those hallmarks, mate. Well, I tell you what's given me a chuckle. Go. Porpoising. <laughs> tell me why. Well, we're talking 2022 cars now, and this is the problem du jour of the moment. Go. What, what, why is it giving you a chuckle? <laughs> <laughs> because been there, done that. Yeah. yeah. Because, of course, once we started to get high levels of downforce um, what do we get? We got policy yeah. and so we had to deal with it in the day How did you cure it then? Well, stronger 
you had to be very careful of the structure so the structure wasn't moving in any way. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be stiff. Yeah. Um, and um, so much stiffer springs mm-hmm. um, because if you're going to have a, a, an aero package relying on road clearance and stuff, mm-hmm. you can't have that varying by much. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be, you've got to control the heave mm-hmm. of the car. And so you've got to go to stiffer springs. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, um, and much more rebound damping yeah. so the thing can't bounce up, up. Yeah. and stuff. And so these people get on top of it. But um, And I would imagine that with all the wind tunnel technology that they can bring to bear now they're getting forces much higher than what we ever could because nobody did CFD and all that sort of stuff in those days and you went to the wind tunnel and you tried a few aero combinations and then um, the worst aspect of the wing car era was that the skirt boxes Mm -hmm. oh they were a nightmare Um, because you had to have a side plate to stop you getting in underneath and so skirts sliding boards in the side of the, yeah, the they required a lot of maintenance something didn't they high maintenance <clears throat> never mind the engine man never mind the gearbox man <laughs> he had the skirt man he, he was the gun <laughs> oh and it, after every session the whole thing had to come off get all the dirt and sand and grit and rubbish out of it so it moves smoothly and because it had to move smoothly because they stuck up mm. so mm. skirt man skirt man I know I think in the in the Fittipaldi team chapter you worked on a solution for that a very yeah. very very clever one can we wrap up Lotus with a couple of questions here firstly when that car debuted I mean it's a game where uh, the pit lane uh, lots of prying eyes, lots of people look at the opposition and, and what they're up to. What what was the reaction from everyone when you turned up with this revolutionary car? Uh, well, first of all, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Colin promoted me sideways into the road car factory. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, we're digressing here for a second. You, you, I think if I'm right here, you, you spoke with a colleague in Peter Windsor mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was to do with the brilliant work we've just talked about yeah. and he wrote an article and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Colin, Colin got mad, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Mm. He didn't, but Colin never said a word to me. Wow. Never, as far as our relationship was concerned, mm. it was just no change. Mm. Never said a word. Mm. Tony Rudd told me that he went through the roof when he wow. read the article. Wow. What was it? I mean, the article just factually it, recounted your work on it, it, I think. Said, didn't it? Just, it, yeah. just said that I'd, I just said I'd designed the car. Mm. And, I mean, uh, all my predecessors like um, Len Terry and Maurice Philippe they designed the cars yes um, so yeah and um, so you didn't see the debut you got moved sideways to the road car operation didn't you? and he, he agreed to let me go to a couple of races and I remember going to Zandvoort uh, to Zolder Zolder um, and um, the Sherard at that track on, on that weekend was the diff mm-hmm. and so the blokes had the gearbox apart and one of the, I remember one of the mechanics scuttling across from the, where we were working the cars to the truck carrying the diff wrapped up in rags and stuff and it, was, it surprised me how long it took for people 
to cotton on. To cotton on. Wow. I mean, for me, <coughs> the the car was planned to run at Monza, mm-hmm. the first car initially, and we weren't really ready, but. And then the plan was maybe to take it to the USGP in Canada at the end of the year. But by that time, we'd been testing and Colin knew what the potential was. And so he decided then to keep it under wraps. Mm-hmm. And uh, even unlike Team Lotus, where they had a big hoop de do launch, launch yeah, at yeah. the Albert Hall or somewhere, somewhere yeah. trivial like that... Yeah. Um, he sort of did it semi-secretly, didn't he? He, 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 sort of, he, he yeah. just had a few diggers up to Hethel mm. um, a couple of days before Christmas, and that was when Peter Windsor came up, mm. and they were just allowed to walk around the car on the floor and mm. stuff like that. And um, so he um, he realised that he didn't want people to have the winter to copy it. Yeah, of course. Okay. As you would. Mm. But then the following year, people never twigged what it was all about. Amazing. And it surprised me. I just thought, they're bonkers. Mm. And at the end of that year, I can remember um, Tyrrell's built a new car, and it was just a big flat-bottom car. Mm. And I thought, Jesus, can't they see what's in front of their eyes? Nice. You know? yeah. No. Wow. Amazing. Well, I'm joining the dots here, and I may not be doing it right, Ralph. So, was it was it Mario Andretti then, and and what was the um, what was the the driver reaction to this? Well, I mean, they 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 enjoyed the car, because yeah. um, Mario had joined the team the year before and mm-hmm. drove this other thing, uh, and I think he I've got a vague idea he might have even won the once we put the outboard front brakes on it, it worked halfway decent. Mm. Um, I think he might have even won the Japanese Grand Prix at the end of the year. Okay. I can't yeah. remember because okay. I wasn't there. But anyway, um, so um, and um, Mario liked the car, and of course Ronnie joined him, and um, they they enjoyed the car. Yeah, um, there was they were a formidable combination. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can remember that race at Zolder. Oh, no, it wasn't Ronnie. It was Gunnar Nielsen. Okay. Gunnar and Mario drove the car the, the first year. Um, and uh, that race I went to at Zolder, Mario was on pole or something, and, but it was wet, and he chucked the car away. And I thought, oh, Jesus. And anyway, good old Gunnar came through from somewhere and won the race for us. But um, he unhappily died of cancer. It, it, over the over the following winter, yeah. Hope you're enjoying my podcast with respected Aussie engineer Ralph Bellamy. I find in these convos I'm always learning something. So apologies for those who are a step ahead in the story, but I have this philosophy of letting the guest share it in their own words and to try and make it for everyone, not just those of us who are die-hard supporters. That's a nice way of me saying, not sorry. Now, if you are on a long drive, part two is good to go in the Rusty's Garage library right now, or you can queue it up for your train trip or your journey tomorrow. I'd love your feedback too, so feel free to leave a review or get in touch on socials. We continue with more 
on the Lotus chapter in that second part, some clever solutions they devised, living in Brazil and working with the legendary Emerson Fittipaldi, when a young Adrian Newey sent his resume in, some hair-raising stories of flying to racetracks and the move to work in racing back down under. Listener.